children can meet their teachers in the back at this time. And older kids, if they're sticking with us, there are clipboards in the back on the uh, racks back there that have outlines with fill-in-the-blank sermon notes that can help follow along. Grown-ups are welcome to take one, but give the kids a chance to first. So, I mean, if you're fighting with a kid for a clipboard, let them have it. You'll be okay. So, As we continue in our study of the Exodus, we're going to transition it into an Advent series, as I'll explain in a moment. And for the next four Sundays of, of Advent, we're going to be seeing uh, ways in which the deliverance of God should stir up the longing in our heart for His return. We're going to begin by looking this week at Exodus chapter 13. I'll be reading verses 1 and 2, and then skipping down to 11 through 16. Hear now the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. And verse 11. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set, a, set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, By a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt." This is the word of the Lord. I wish I could find a video of this, but I, I saw it happen live on the news many, many, many years ago in the community where I was living at the time. There was um, a home being built, sort of like a Habitat for Humanity sort of thing. They were building a home for a family in need, and it was being celebrated, and they were just kind of spotlighting this good thing that was being done. And a local news reporter was meeting with the family for whom the home was being built, and they asked, how do you feel? And I'm sure they expected, you know, joyful, thankful, grateful, excited. But much to the visible surprise of the interviewer, the woman being interviewed answered, I feel hungry and I feel cold. And that looks nice, but it's not helping me yet. I would suggest that that is the spirit of Advent. Advent, the word itself means arrival or the showing up, usually of someone important. And, and so in Advent, we look forward to the arrival of our Savior. And just as the people of God in, in old times looked forward to the, the birth of the Messiah, the coming of the Messiah to save them, we now look forward to His, His full return. But the season of Advent, as I said earlier, it's, it's not extended Christmas. It's not just four more weeks to decorate and to celebrate these things. Advent is to be a time of preparing our hearts to rightly celebrate the arrival of our Savior, which we prepare ourselves by being reminded of why we need Him in the first place. 
Advent is standing there looking ahead to what is coming, to what is not yet here but is on its way, and saying, I'm hungry, I'm cold, I need that, and I want it to hurry up. So in the next few weeks, as we continue looking at Exodus, we're going to see how as the people of God leave Egypt and begin their way towards the promised land, they are confronted with their continual need for God to show up. And He does. And we're going to be seeing the way in which they need Him, how it reminds us and teaches us during especially this season of Advent what we need. Why we ought to look forward to and celebrate Christmas. Because all that the people of God need is given in Jesus Christ. Given in part in His first coming when He was born in a manger and went to the cross and rose again. But given in full when He returns. And so we celebrate what He has done, but we look forward with a holy longing to what He will do. This morning, we're going to be looking at the coming of redemption. Redemption means buying something back. Buying something back. And through the claiming of the firstborn, God teaches us to long for our firstborn brother, Jesus Christ, because through Him, God buys back His people who were lost. And through that shows how much they are worth in His sight. So three things that I want us to see that redemption shows us because this is a story of redemption. It's about the firstborn, but only in the sense that the firstborn are redeemed. And through the firstborn, the people are redeemed. They are bought back. So the Lord begins in chapter 13 with what might seem like a a random declaration. The Lord says to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn." Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and beast, is mine. So it's like God is calling dibs. First thing that's born, it's mine. I got it. It's mine. Human or animal. But as we understand in context, it's not strange or random at all. It's part of the bigger story of what's going on. Here's, Here's why God says that the firstborn are His. In Exodus 4, the Lord tells Moses to go say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel, all the people, Israel is my firstborn. But zooming out even bigger, Psalm 21 says that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world is the Lord's and those who dwell therein. So the firstborn belong to the Lord because everyone belongs to the Lord. It's not that the firstborn belong to the Lord and no one else. It's everyone does, and the firstborn represent their family. And that's a cultural clue that we miss that's really important to grasping this. In most ancient cultures in the world, even up to the near present, and especially at the time of the Exodus in the world of that day, the firstborn of the family was significant. The firstborn was going to have authority over the family. Once they were of age, the firstborn would receive a greater share of the inheritance, but along with that came a responsibility to provide for and care for the rest of the family. The firstborn would speak for the family and represent them. The firstborn would make decisions on behalf of the family. The firstborn was the one who publicly represented the family. So in Egypt, 
When as we saw in the past two weeks, when the 10th plague struck down all the firstborn, the Lord was showing that every home in Egypt was under judgment. It wasn't anything about the firstborn. It was saying, hey, I'm striking down the firstborn, which means your whole household is under my judgment. And here, when the Lord says the firstborn are his, that they must be given over to him, either sacrificed or bought back, redeemed. He shows that everything, every person, every animal, all of it belongs to the Lord. And so the first thing that redemption teaches us is that redemption shows who you belong to. The fact that God calls for His people to be redeemed communicates the important truth that before they belong to anyone else, they belong to Him. When I lived overseas, we used our bikes. We didn't have cars, we had bikes. And we went everywhere by bike. And I had a roommate one year named Scott. And Scott was six foot 30. I mean, he was huge. I mean, he stood out. And uh, Scott was also an engineer before he'd come over to the mission field for a year. And Scott, you know, the bikes that you could buy there were not made for people over, you know, six feet tall. And so Scott had decked out and engineered his bike to fit his legs. He'd, he'd like specially you know, designed it and fitted it out, painted it the color he liked. He loved his bike. But as was very, very, very common, his bike got stolen. Somebody cut the lock, stole his bike, broke his heart. Well, one day as Scott's going around campus, walking, he saw his bike. And he wanted it. He, he waited for the person to come out. He's like, that's my bike. And they engaged in a heated discussion over whose bike it really was because it had been stolen and then resold to this young man. And Scott's arguing, but it was mine first. And the guy says, well, I, I'm sorry, but I, I paid money for it. If you want to buy it from me, I'll sell it to you so I can buy another bike. And Scott was so angry. And he said to me, I can't believe I'm expected to pay for something that's mine in the first place. And then he stopped and said, oh, no, I know how God feels now. That, that, that's how missionaries talk. We're always, you know, thinking like that. But the point was, it belonged to him in the first place. Your story doesn't begin with you on the outside looking in. Your story doesn't begin with you as an outsider to the kingdom and the family of God. It's not a story that begins with lostness. It's a story that begins with belonging. That's what makes sin so painful and so dreadful and so horrid. It's a taking away of what rightfully belongs to the Lord. If he has to redeem it, it means it was his in the first place. And we belong to the Lord for two reasons. Number one, he made us. He created us. We're his. And number two, he bought us back. Just like Scott had fitted out that bike and designed it and made it for himself and then had to buy it again. It was doubly his. It was his twice over. He did get to buy it back, by the way. And because we belong to God, we have hope and we have purpose. In Isaiah 43, the Lord says, Thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. The Lord calls His people to have hope based on the fact that they belong to Him, and He is a mighty God. He will not let His precious things be taken from Him. He guards them, protects them. They are His. Fear not. Have hope. But there is also purpose. 
we have hope, but we also have purpose. Later on in Isaiah 53, he says to those people that are his, he says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. God has created us with a purpose. It's not up to us to determine how our life is to be lived, what's good, what is meaningful. Our purpose is given to us from God. Paul explains it this way in 1 Corinthians 6. You aren't your own. You do not belong to you. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. You belong to God. You are His. That gives you hope and security, but that also gives you purpose and direction. And your redemption shows who you belong to. So your story is a story of belonging. It's a story of belonging to God. And we know that and we see that because we have a firstborn who represents us. It's described this way in Romans 8. Those whom God foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. When Scripture calls Jesus the firstborn, it's not saying He's older than us. It's it's not about age or timing or chronology. It's about position, status. He is the firstborn. He is the one that stands above us and represents us and takes our place and defends us and provides for us and leads us. He is the head of the family, the firstborn. That's Jesus. Or as Colossians 1 describes Him, it says He is the firstborn of all creation. Because Jesus is the firstborn of the family of God, He represents us. Where He goes, we go. His battles become our battles. His loss is our loss. His victory, our victory. We share His death, His resurrection, His glory. His death on the cross was like that of a firstborn, dying on behalf of His brothers and sisters, taking their place, securing their redemption. When the firstborn in the households in Egypt were redeemed, The whole household was under that redemption. You who are in Christ, you who have faith in Him and follow Him, He is the firstborn of the family that you belong to. You look to Him and you know where you belong. And because you now know where you belong, you know where you're going. You know your purpose. So redemption shows who you belong to. But this story that begins with belonging reveals that something went horribly wrong. Because the fact that you need redemption indicates that you didn't stay where you were. The relationship has been disrupted. We're not where we belong anymore. And so redemption shows who you belong to, but it also shows that you have been lost. Verse 15, When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. This points back to what we've been seeing the past two weeks as we've looked in these chapters of Scripture. The plague of the death of the firstborn of Egypt. Every household was the sign of God's judgment on sin, a judgment that ends in death. This judgment and every judgment of God is meant to draw our attention to the consequences of mankind's original first rebellion. In Genesis 2, the Lord warned Adam 
saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. As we know, Adam and Eve disobeyed, and death has been the curse of mankind ever since. And so as the Lord is saying, the firstborn are mine, and it's meant to remind them of what happened in Egypt. We see there's only two possibilities. Either the firstborn is sacrificed, which is the due penalty of, of, death, of sin, death, or the firstborn is redeemed. It is bought out of death. Those are the only possibilities. And the sacrifice of the firstborn animals reminded God's people that the curse of the fall was still very real. That sin still led to death. There's no getting around it. God claims the firstborn to remind His people that they're the, under the authority of a king that they have disobeyed. It reminds them that they're lost people. And lost people need a Savior. This continues to be true today of me, of you, of everyone we know. Our story begins with belonging, but our story finds us in lostness. And the trouble is, so few of us really believe that and come to grips with that. We think of ourselves as good people, nice people, kind people, or we're comfortable people. We're misunderstood people. We are, we're mistreated people. We are well-intentioned people. We find a hundred other euphemisms to describe how we're not at fault. We're not the problem. But the testimony of Scripture is that we are lost. We are far from the God who made us and loved us. And worse than that, we are in the service of His enemies. And I know those are strong words, and I'm not suggesting that anyone in this room is a Satanist, but you don't have to worship Satan to serve him. You don't have to praise sin in order to be sinful. And so the plain truth of Scripture is this. Unless we are redeemed by God, we are captives to the enemy, and we are always serving Him. Paul describes it this way in Romans 6. He says, don't let sin reign. Listen to that word, reign, to rule, to have control. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members, your parts of your body, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. You know, we're going to be singing a little bit later in the service, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my hands, take my voice, take my feet, take my heart. The options are we are either being put to service for God or we are being put to service for His enemy. There's no, there's no middle ground. And what we've been talking about and praying and singing about today, when we speak of Advent, we're, we're looking forward to the arrival of the one who will enter into our lostness, enter into the enemy's camp, and take us out and bring us into the place where we belong. As Colossians 1 describes us, Christ delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Notice there's only two options. You're either in the kingdom of darkness or you're in the kingdom of Christ. There's no wasteland in between. There's no neutral land where we hang out as the good people who haven't picked a side yet. We are either forced into the enemy's service 
or we are rescued and redeemed. So it is Christ, as we sang earlier, the long-expected Jesus, born to set His people free. The one who said in Luke 19 that He came, the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. If you would sing of your Redeemer and call Him Savior, if you would look forward to and indeed celebrate what Christmas is about, you have to accept that you were lost enough to need a Savior. You were lost enough to need one who came to seek and save the lost. He didn't come to seek and save those who are okay. He didn't come to seek and save those who are vaguely spiritual. He didn't come to seek and save those who are alright and just needed a leg up. He didn't come to seek and save those who are better than those other people out there. He came to seek and save the lost. Are you lost? If you are not, then you have no part in Christ. But for those who do acknowledge their lostness, He is their Redeemer. He buys them back. So redemption shows who you belong to. Redemption shows that you're lost. There's one more thing. Redemption shows what you are worth. Verses 12 and 13, You shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. Again, the options are, if it's an animal, it's to be sacrificed. If it is a son, it is to be redeemed. And that's a, it's a curious command. The animals were to be sacrificed, which when I first read through at the beginning, when he talked about donkeys, and it was like, what? Why, why do we need a donkey exception? Are the donkeys special? The donkeys were unclean. Donkeys could not be sacrificed. There were laws against that. And so if it's a donkey, you have to trade it out for a lamb. So the animals were to be sacrificed, but the sons were obviously not to be sacrificed because they were special. They were precious. The firstborn, it was a child. You're not going to sacrifice your child. And so the sons were to be redeemed. The family had to pay a price, a price which said, this one is supposed to be sacrificed, but we're going to buy it out of sacrifice. We're going to buy it out of the death sentence that, that we are under. And remember, that firstborn child represented the family. So as that child is redeemed and saved from judgment, the family is redeemed and saved from judgment. And that redemption shows what you're worth. To bring back something that's lost, there will always be a cost. And my friend Scott, he had to pay for the bike all over again. Sometimes to bring back what is lost, there's a financial cost involved. So you misplace something, you lose something, something breaks. If it's lost, you, you might have to pay to replace it. Might be talking about time. You lose a file, you lose a homework assignment. You have to invest time to replace what has been lost. You lose a relationship to death or, or an argument or something. It, it takes an emotional cost to replace what is lost. But there's always going to be a cost. To redeem His people, God had to pay a cost. In Mark 10, Jesus explained what that cost would be. He said, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. The cost of redeeming God's people was the life of Jesus. A ransom. Jesus came saying He was going to be a ransom. A ransom is a price given in exchange for a life. One of my favorite stories in history is Julius Caesar, before he was you know, emperor, before he was et tu brute and all that, before all that, Julius Caesar at one point was kidnapped by pirates. 
And the pirates wrote a ransom note to send to the nation of Rome, demanding a huge sum of money for the return of their general. And they let Julius Caesar see the note. And do you know what he did? He ripped it up and he said, write it again. You didn't ask for enough. He said, I'm worth more than that. And they, they listened. They wrote it again. They asked for way more and they got it. Because Rome knew what he was worth and Julius Caesar knew or thought he knew what he was worth. People of God, it's very important for you to consider what it means that God redeemed you and the price of your ransom was the cost of his son. That Jesus, that Jesus chose to give his life as a ransom for you. Remember Isaiah 43 when God said, you are mine. In verse 4, he says, because of that, because you're precious to me, because I value you so highly and you are honored, I love you, I will give men in return for you. I will give peoples in exchange for your life. He's saying that to the nation of Israel. But that promise is fulfilled in Christ as he says to his people, because I love you, I give the life of my son in exchange for you. The price of redemption shows the worth of what is redeemed. No, actually. That's not true. I want, to, I want to tweak that to make it more accurate. The price of redemption shows the worth of what is redeemed to the one who pays it. This is why I hate bargaining, okay? Uh, this, I don't know what things are really actually worth. And I would be horrible on the price is right, where you have to know what the actual worth is. But when I lived overseas, one of the things that we had to do often was you have to bargain as you're buying things. And you come into the shop and they're advertising this thing for a hundred and you say, I'm only going to pay 10. And then they have to put on this show, oh, 10, my family will starve. How about 90? I'm like, no, no, I can't afford that 20. Oh, 80. Oh, no, look, it's uh, 30. And you, you, know, you end up at like 45 and nobody's happy and you walk away. And I hate it because I'm trying to figure out what's this thing actually work, worth? I mean, it was you're acting like it's like one of a kind art, but it was probably made in a factory with a million others just like it. It's probably worth eight cents. And you're trying to get me up to three dollars? No, thank you. And it, I, it, what really helped me was when a, a friend, a mentor friend of mine was out with me and hearing me frustrated over bargaining, trying to get their price down to what I knew it was actually worth. And he said, no, 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 you're doing the wrong thing. You're not trying to pay what it's actually worth. You're trying to pay what it's worth to you. Okay, what's it worth to you to have that? If it's worth $3, pay $3. If it's worth $10, pay $10. The question is, what's it worth to you? And for many of us, we are... We get tripped up trying to figure out our own self-worth and we're trying to figure out by the wrong standard. We're measuring our worth, and I, I don't get trapped measuring your worth by the way the world calculates it. Don't use the metric of, am I beautiful or not? Am I strong and healthy or not? Am I successful or not? How's my bank account look? What kind of good things am I doing? Have I been involved in the right activism and the right causes? Do I have influence over other people? How large is my family? How are my kids and grandkids doing? What kind of legacy am I leaving for the world? That's not how you know what you are worth. You are worth the life of Jesus Christ. God has determined it. He's put the value on you. 
Don't sell yourself cheap. Remember what you are worth to God, what He has said you are worth. In His love and in His wisdom, He has declared you worthy of the greatest sacrifice ever made. Don't second guess that. When we remember our worth to God, it gives us peace and it gives us confidence. It gives us great peace and confidence. Listen to how that's described in Romans 8.32. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. That's the price. That's, that's how much God has valued you. The price is the life of His Son. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? If God values you so much, who can come against you and succeed? Basically. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Do you see the great peace that comes with what God has valued you at? That if He values you so highly, so greatly, then He secures you. No one can bring a charge against you. No one can separate you from His love because He loves you so much at so great a price. And there is confidence. His love knows no limits. He has given so much in exchange for you. He's not going to hold anything back. Anything else you need or want will pale in comparison to the price that He's already paid for you. How will He not, along with Christ, graciously give us all we need? And so your redemption, brothers and sisters, your redemption shows who you belong to. It shows that you were lost and needed to be bought back. And it shows what you were worth to the one who bought you. Okay, I want to close with a story, and it's a story I can't tell without struggling. <laughs> I did okay in the first service, but it's already starting early now. Okay, and it's a book, and many, of you, many people after the first service wanted the name of the book, so I'm going to say the name of the book. It's The Magnificent Journey of Edward Tulane. T-U-L-A-N-E. It's a book for kids. It's a chapter book for older kids, but beautiful story. And I'm going to spoil it, so if you want to be surprised, just don't listen and you'll miss out on my conclusion here. Edward Tulane is a toy rabbit made out of China. He's fragile, fancy, fancy silk clothing, and he wears a gold chain that has a pocket watch on it. And he is owned by a young girl named Abilene, and Abilene loves Edward with every fiber of her being. And every day she takes off his watch and sets the timer and says, when the big hand is on, the, that's when I'll be home from school and you can wait. Well, I mean, she just pours all of her love into Edward, little 10-year-old girl, and Edward doesn't care. The story is told from Edward's perspective. Edward really doesn't care. Edward loves himself. That's all he loves. He only cares about himself. And then Edward is lost. Edward is tragically lost and sinks to the bottom of the sea. He's later scooped up in a fishing net and he's carried home by a fisherman who takes care of him with his wife. He's later mistakenly taken to the dump, buried under trash. He's found and carried around for years by a hobo and his dog who he comes to love. He's nailed and forced to be a scarecrow. He is kept by a dying girl in her final moments. He is smashed. He is broken, <sighs> dirtied, chewed up, and years and years. And <laughs> Sorry. Happening earlier every time. <sighs> Decades go by. And Edward closes his heart. He has found love. He's learned what love is. And love is too hard. And so he just closes it off. And I don't want to be loved anymore. 
And he ends up on the shelf of a doll shop, surrounded by fancy dolls. And every day, day after day, month after month, people come in and buy these dolls. And they pass Edward by, and he doesn't care because he doesn't want to be loved. Waiting hurts. Hoping hurts. Hoping is hard. And then a new doll in the shop one day is placed next to him, and she asks him, are you excited to think who might find you and take you home? And he says, no. Don't you want to be loved? No. I've had enough of love. It's hard. I don't want to wait. I don't want to hope anymore. I don't care anymore. And he is rebuked by the doll. She says, how sad. If we don't love and receive love, what is the point of any of this? And her words spark something in Edward's heart and it begins to open and he dares to hope for a moment. And he dares to have some expectation and some longing and a desire to be loved again. Some of you can guess where this is going. If you've been listening to the sermon, you can really guess where it's going because one day a little girl walks in Decades later, and she finds Edward, and she loves him. And she calls her mommy over, and she says, Mommy, I want this. And the mommy looks down, and she's got a gold chain with a little pocket watch. And it's Appleine. Sorry. Cora had me reread the chapter like three times. She's like, stop reading it. and Read it until your voice stops being funny. So... This was just like two weeks ago, so it's still fresh. It was Abilene. Abilene there with her daughter, decades later. And she had kept Edward's chain for all those years. And she recognizes him. And she buys him. She redeems him. She brings him home where he belongs. And that is what Christ has done with you. And Advent... Advent is that reminder. It's that doll next to us on the shelf rebuking us and saying, don't close your heart. Don't give up hope. Dare to expect. Dare to wait. Dare to believe that you will be brought home again and look forward to it until the day it comes. During Advent, though it is hard, though it is humbling, look forward to the coming of the one who redeems you and brings you home where you are meant to be because he has counted you worthy of the greatest price he could pay to bring you to where you were meant to be. The firstborn of creation, Jesus Christ, was redeemed in your place to show that you belong to him and though you are lost, you are worthy of whatever it costs to bring you home. We celebrate that, but we long for that, we ache for that, And as you look forward to Christmas, let your heart be prepared with that sense of longing and desire, that craving to be brought home again, even as you realize you're not there yet. Dare to believe that you will be. Let us thank our Heavenly Father who has redeemed us. Our great God and Savior, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And you did exactly that. Oh, that you would again break through the darkness and the shadows and the clouds and reclaim what is your own. 
we thank you that these things are certain for us in Christ, and yet they feel so unbelievable and so far away, and our souls are not moved by them. Father, would your Spirit make alive in our hearts the desire to be redeemed fully in Christ. We look forward to it. We ache for it. We reach for it and we live in light of it and we pray for these things in His name. Amen.